The following audio is from LifePoint Church, located in O'Fallon, Missouri. For more information about LifePoint Church, visit us online at thelifepointconnection.com. Lord, as I humble myself before your word, God, I pray that you would use it. Your word says, to those who have ears, let them hear. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to hear your word today. I pray for those who, for whatever reason, walked into this place struggling or walked into this place complacent or indifferent or hard-hearted towards you, God. I pray that right now your presence and your word will be drawing them through your Holy Spirit, that we would receive what you say is truth, that actually today we would come awake to the depths of our soul and begin to know the realities and the depth of your great, great, great love toward us. Do that among us in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Awesome, awesome worshiping with you guys always, always. Uh, I love, I love singing praises to the Lord, and I love uh, what the band does for us. So uh, if you've got your Bibles, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is going to be our text, all right, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible... Uh, you can raise your hand on up. We've got several of those in the back. We can pass those out to you. If you don't own a Bible, you could take that one with you. That's our gift. So just raise them up. They'll come around to you, uh, and you could take that one with you if you need to. First Corinthians 1. So there was a time uh, when Jesus was out with his boys, and uh, they were out and about, and Jesus gets word uh, that he has a friend named Lazarus, and Lazarus was sick. And so the text says that Jesus loved Lazarus. Jesus loved him. And because he loved him, he actually stayed where he was a few more days. Now, this is, this is actually pretty radical when you think about it because Jesus was actually going around healing people. And he has a friend that he actually loves. And he's like, I'm just going to let it roll. Uh, which, is, which is super crazy. And so uh, he stays where he is for uh, a certain amount of time. And then until finally, uh, in John chapter 11, he actually says to his disciples, he says, hey, I need to go to Lazarus because he's fallen asleep. This is what it says. It says, verse 11, it says, after saying these things, he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I need to go and wake him up. And his disciples are a little confused and they say, uh, well, if he's just asleep, uh, can't someone else just wake him up? <laughs> and then Jesus begins to say, well, actually, uh, what I mean by fall asleep, I mean he's died. And so Jesus leaves where he was, and he goes back to the town where Lazarus was, and he enters into this situation beyond situations where friends and families and townspeople and all these people are gathering, and they're actually mourning and wailing and weeping because they lost someone that they love very greatly. And Jesus, check this out, he allows himself to enter into the entire situation, and he feels the weight of it all, knowing already what had happened. He knew the end. He knew the beginning of how that whole thing's going to work out. And it says that, that Jesus weeps with them. Jesus finally says, hey, where is he? Where did you lay him? And they're like, okay, over here. And they bring him to the tomb, right? And he stands there at the tomb and he says, why don't you take that stone and roll that away, right? And, and this is, I love this, because they begin to argue with him. Uh, wait, wait. 
Are you sure? Because it's going to stink really bad. It says that there's going to be a great, great odor because he's been dead for four days. And Jesus is like, yeah, you should move that away. Watch this, right? They moved the stone away. And he says, he says, uh, he says this. He says, roll the stone away. He gives thanks. And then he had said these things. He stood before the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come forth. It's like he says, Lazarus, wake up, right? And so Lazarus wakes up. He gets up from his death, uh, and he's walking out. Why is he walking like that? Because it says that he was bound. His feet were bound. His hands were bound. His face was bound. And so he's probably coming out like this. He can't really see anything. There's stuff over his face. Uh, And then in verse 44, it says, The man who had died had come out. His hands and his feet were bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Not only did he raise him from the dead, not only did he call to him and say, Come awake, come alive, but rather he says, Also, Unbind him and let him go. I love sleep. You guys like sleep? Um, I, can, I can hang with the best of them. Like I can stay up late. And I can even get up early. But getting up is difficult. Like as soon as I get up, I can get, aw- get awake. But it's that, it's, that, it's, that, it's that period between my pillow and the floor. Are you with me on that? That's, that's tough for me, all right? I love sleep. How many of you guys need little, just little sleep? Five, four hours, okay, little sleeper. How many of you need like eight plus? All right, all right. I, I love sleep. I remember my wife and I, when our kids were little, we're, we're praying, we're asking God, God, please let that day come soon that they love to sleep, all right, if, if you have little ones, you probably know what I'm talking about. All right, so uh, my kids are at the age where they love to sleep. I loved to sleep. And uh, I remember when I was a kid, uh, my dad would come into the room, and, and I remember that it didn't last very long, but he would try and wake me up. He's like, Eric, wake up. And I would just basically roll over and, and continue to sleep. He realized that very shortly, and so he would do this thing to me. As I'm in a deep, 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 deep sleep, he would come over and stand over my bed and just kind of breathe on me. It like, it like sets the tone, right? You're like, something's going on right here. And then, and then out of nowhere, he would say, wake up! And I would go, My heart, I, I thought he'd give me a heart attack. <laughs> my heart was beating out of my chest, right? Have you ever seen those YouTube videos where they just prank wake people up? Yeah. Mostly in dorms. <laughs> I, saw, I saw one. Was, I'm sorry, I'm saying, telling this. It's total rabbit trail. I saw this one uh, where they blew an air horn right by this guy, and he's sleeping, and, and he gets up, and he smacks the girl. <laughs> Like, it was, like, just a reaction. He just, and she, like, goes down and is laying there not moving. I'm like, oh! <laughs> that's, that, 
That's what, my, that's what my dad would do to me, right? Sometimes he would come in with water, no warning, nothing. Just dump that mug on me. And you bolt right up, karate chop, whatever, and you're awake. We would see that and say, that's probably pretty cruel, right? I mean, if I did that to my wife, she'd be like, uh-uh. <laughs> Never again will you do that. And she'll make sure of it. We would see that and say, that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, but actually, it's, it's one of the most loving things that God can do for us is to make sure that we wake up. When God calls to us, when God stands over your tomb and he says, wake up. That's not a cruel kind of joke. It's the most loving thing that God can do to us to really shake us awake, get us right up, and let us go after God. That is the fullness of the love of God towards us. Because when he wakes you up, hear me, it is power and it is strength for you when you come awake in him. It is power, it's strength, and life is Always just greater and shifting and powerful and strong after he wakes you up. Look in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's start in verse verse 17. Okay, Uh, There's a talk among the church at Corinth. Uh, about this kind of, uh, there's a division there because some would say that I was baptized by this guy and some would say I was baptized by this guy. And so there's kind of this division of, of who's cooler, right, in the church. We don't have that ever. Uh, but there's this division of who's cooler. Anyway, uh, Paul, he shows up and he says, verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize. Okay, I want to stop right there. He, Paul's not saying that he's above the Great Commission, Paul's not saying right here, you know, uh, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Paul's not saying, that's not me. He's just telling you his main purpose for coming to them. He does baptize people. His main purpose was not necessarily to baptize, but rather to what? Preach the gospel and, and not preach the gospel with words of eloquence. So not with words of eloquence and wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its, what's that word? Power, okay? And so I'm not coming to you with, uh, uh, with great wisdom and philosophies and knowledge. I'm coming to you with Christ and Christ crucified, which is the power of God for all who believe. And so I don't want to empty the cross of Christ and be emptied of its power, thinking that somehow I was able to save you, but rather Christ Has power. Look in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, foolishness. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the what? Power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Listen, I I cannot articulate you enough the depth of what God is, who God is, 
how deep and rich is the love of God. I cannot give you enough wisdom to help you somehow articulate the depths of that. And so it's, it's just folly until God wakes you up. For Look at what it says, verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the, what's that word? The power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so here's the deal. Look at verse 26. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. Consider your calling. Have you ever asked what your calling is? I think a lot of us have. I mean, at some point in life, you're like, what's my calling? This text in verse 26, it says, I want you to consider your calling. Now, now what kind of calling is Paul referring to in this text? Is he referring to uh, a job? What, Lord, what job, what, what, Lord are you, what, what job are you calling me into? Is that what he's talking about? Is he talking about a vocation? Is he talking about some type of mission, some type of uh, 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 task at hand that needs to be done? Is that what he's talking about here? Is he talking about maybe being a carpenter or a manager? Is that your calling to consider? Is it a, is it a, a homemaker? Is it a teacher? Is it a student? Have you ever asked yourself, what's the calling? Maybe it's an accountant. God's called me to be an accountant. Maybe it's a, a caregiver or some type of missionary or a preacher or an evangelist. Is that, is that the calling that he's talking about in this text? No. No, it's not. He's referring to God calling your heart to himself. He's talking about a powerful calling. He's talking about a calling that brings darkness into light. You with me on that? He's talking about a calling that brings death to life. That's the type of calling that he's he's asking you to consider. Consider your calling. And it's pretty clear in verse 22, if you back up, it says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So listen, there's three groups of people that he's referring to in this text. He's referring to non-called Jews, which are the religious people. And he's referring to the non-called Gentiles, which is the rest of the world. And then he's referring to the called. So, so there's not called Jews, not called other people outside of Jews, and then there's called. That's the calling. So what's the difference? Well, okay, uh, to the Jews, it says uh, they demand signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. And so there's these people that are very religious, 
very religious in their actions. They feel like in order to get to God, they've got to do some certain things. All right? And so you do this to get to God, you do this to get to God, you do this to make sure that God's pleased with you. And so if you do those things, then God would be pleased with you, and then he'll allow you to, to come to him. But here's the deal. Uh, there's people that are very religious, very works-based righteousness, and when you talk about cross and the cross alone and the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross is enough by grace through faith to bring you to God, that's, that's a stumbling block to what I'm actually talking about in a religious sacrifice. What do you mean? Oh, yeah, okay, I'll say the cross, but maybe it's the cross and good behavior. That gets me in. Maybe it's the cross and good church attendance. Maybe that does it. Maybe it's the cross and something else. Maybe it's the cross and this. Maybe it's the cross and that. And so when you preach the cross and Jesus crucified, they would see that and say, that's a stumbling block. And then there's the rest of the world who just simply gets caught up with uh, uh, evaluations and how uh, birds' beaks are different or something like, like crazy, like layers of the earth and all these different intellectual things. And they hear the cross, a dying God, are you kidding me? That's a fairy tale. A dying Messiah for the sins of the world, that's mythological. That doesn't make any sense. That's foolishness. Yes, it's foolishness to the Gentiles. Yes, it's foolishness to the Jews or a stumbling block. But to those who are being saved, it's power. It's the power of God. It's the power. It doesn't come with wisdom. It doesn't come with intellect. It doesn't come with religious favor. It comes with Christ and him crucified. You see, here's the gospel, is that we were dead in our sins, in our trespasses, but God, being rich in mercy, came and lived the perfect life, glorifying God fully and dying innocently upon a cross. That is the absorbing of the wrath of God towards your sin that you and I both deserve. And he offers us himself as he raised from the dead. And he says, you can have eternal life if you believe in me. That's foolishness. I don't see intellect in that. That doesn't make sense. Someone innocent dying for the guilty. That's the gospel. And it's powerful for those who believe. And so here, here we see Christ crucified as power in verse 24, which means, hear me, the call is the work of God. The call of God to say, wake up is the work of God for you and for me to somehow bring us up out of the dead. And it's true and it's powerful and it's compelling. Eric. What's this call out about? Listen, it's a life-giving call. It's a light-bringing call. It's a, it's a call that gives sight. It's a call that unleashes any bondage from the dead. It's the call that when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God leaned over you and said, wake up. And it's powerful. It's powerful. Some of you have never heard anything like that. Listen, the call of God is effective. The call of God is irresistible. The call of God is mighty to wake you up and to save you. The call of God gives life out of death. And some of you, you've never heard anything like that. I thought I'd just, I thought I'd just believe in Jesus... And then I'm just left to figure it out. My own strength, my own power, my own wisdom. 
I just, I just, I just confess belief in Jesus, and then, and then I just try to do this thing. Listen, God's call is how God saves you. He calls to you. He wakes you up. So if you're a believer here today, that's how you became a Christian. That's how you got saved. God, somehow, wherever you were, wherever, whether it was on your floor, in your bedroom, whether it was at some conference or some camp or in a church setting like this, God called to you and said, wake up. And that's how you got saved. He brought you from death into a marvelous light, into life. And that call is effective. And no one can run, and no one can hide from it. No one or nothing can silence it. And no one can overrule that call. The fact is, you don't make yourself a Christian. Well, I did, I did something. Yeah, you, you were dead. Dead people do nothing. You don't make yourself a Christian. When God says, wake up, you wake up which is why you should feel so incredibly loved. Which is why you should feel so loved, the fact that only God can wake you up. And the fact that he's done that for some of you, doesn't that just make you want to rejoice and say, thank you, Jesus? I know that he's doing that. He's done that in some of you, and he's doing that in others of you. Some of you, some of you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and you are about to sleep yourself right into hell. And Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, called to you and said, wake up. Some of you, some of you are dead in your sins right now, and you're about to sleep yourself right into hell, and it is the most loving thing that God can do to say, wake up. And you come alive, and you feel a call of God that you've never felt. And it's power, guys. It's not, it's not just evaluating wisdom. It's power. It's power to those who are being saved. God calls. He wakes you up to the ugliness of your sins and the beauty of a Savior. And it's marvelous. It's wonderful. Look in, look in, verse, look in verse 27. All right? Look at this. Verse 26 says, Consider your calling. Many of you were not wise. Many of you were not powerful. Many of you were not uh, noble. Verse 27. But God, what's that word? Chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God, what's that word? Chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Verse 28. God, what's that word? chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So here's the deal. The only other place that word chose is used in the Bible is in Ephesians 1 where it says, before the foundations of the world, I chose you. So, so hear me now. God loves you in ways that are so, so spectacular that he wakes you up, that he saw you dead in your sins, and he says, you are mine. Before the foundations of the world, he saw you wallowing. You're mine. God's love is so spectacular that, that we need supernatural help to believe it. That, that's why my preaching is not enough. 
Uh, I mean, I can, I can talk to you. I can shout to you. I can, I can preach to you all day long. It will never be enough. God's love is so deep and so wide and so spectacular. You can't grasp it or even experience it without some type of supernatural help from God. And that's why we pray. That's why we pray every day and every moment. God, would you somehow wake my kids up? Would you somehow wake this family up? Somehow wake my, my friend up? Would you wake us up as a church? Because we got to know that it is supernatural work, hand of God, that does that. And so what's, what's needed? What's the power? It's an interaction with the Holy Spirit, Romans 5.5. 5. It says, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Without the divine power of the Holy Spirit, we will be unable to experience the love of God. It's such a powerful and divine thing to know that you're loved this way that it actually alters your life. You don't alter your life so that God can somehow be pleased and lovely to you. It's this experience happens when he wakes you up and you realize that you're loved in such a way that it begins to alter everything in your life. So why does the Bible reveal God's love as a calling to bring attention to his own work? And put it to you this way. Why does God take you completely out of the picture when it comes to salvation? Why does God remove all of your efforts, all of your, all of your little increases, all your religious behavior? Why does he take you completely out of the picture when it comes to saving you? Why does God over and 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 over again in the Bible say, you did not do this to yourself? Why does God do it that way? All right, look, look in verse 28. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring nothing to the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So we cannot stand in the presence of God and say, God, look how great I am. Look at all the things that I did to somehow make you pleased with me. It's, it, listen, he takes you completely out of the picture to, so that we can't stand before God and boast. I mean, he can't do that anyway. I mean, he's God. I mean, what are you going to brag about? <laughs> Think about it. God removes us from the equation of salvation in such a way that we can't even boast about our salvation. And so, and so here, here's the deal. God did it this way because we have a, a tendency to turn the love of God towards me in worship of self. Did you know that? That we would say God loves me in such a way that God must be about me, so I'm about me, and so I become my own God. We have a bent towards that. And so God says, uh-uh, I'm going to remove you out so that you don't worship yourself. Here's the deal. If God is for me, who shall be against me? We love that. We love that. And the reason why we love that is because we somehow think that verse is about me. See, we, we put ourselves in it, and so if God is for me, then God must want me to be about me. And then, and then God then becomes a servant to me, 
because God's about me. And so uh, it becomes about me on the platform and God wants to give me everything I want and God wants to make me happy. And if we don't understand this calling of God that he asks us to consider, that he calls us to himself, all of a sudden that we will make God's love for me about me and not about God. And so it's about my preciousness and my happiness and my rights and my wants and my desires and my, my love and everything that I want because God is about me. And if God is about me, then you guys all, everyone and everything has to bow down to me because don't you see that God's about me? Don't you see that God wants me to be happy? So you bow down to me, you worship me, you love me, you love what I want, which is me. And that's what God's about. And we will take our value of self and make our very self God. But here's the good news. Is that God chose you and God called you and he loved you in so much and you're so valuable to him that he'll not let that happen to his people. So much so that he says, It's by grace through faith that you're saved. And this faith is not even your own doing. It's a gift. So that you can't stand before me and boast. God will make sure that God remains God. God will make sure that God becomes your supreme joy. God will make sure that your hope is not in yourself, but rather God. Romans 11, it says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. Why? To him be the glory forever and ever. And the church says, amen. To him be the glory. Why? Because God knows that we make horrible gods. And we will run ourselves right to destruction. Just ask my wife. I make a horrible God. And so God knows that we'll put ourselves on the throne, we'll put ourselves on the pedestal, and with all my limited resources and all my limited abilities, will I ever, ever, ever be able to satisfy myself? Listen to me, church. You will never, in all of your resources and all of your limited abilities, ever, ever, ever be able to satisfy yourself. Yet we try. Yet we try. What happens is that either you have a lot of resources and you get everything that you want, but then you realize there's always something more that you want. It will never satisfy your soul. And so because there's always something else, you spend your entire life getting everything you want, realizing that you're still never satisfied. And in the end, it leaves you empty and discouraged and depressed or you don't have a whole lot of strength, you don't have a whole lot of resources, and you are left empty and discouraged and depressed. And so nothing in your own ability could ever make you satisfied. And so God, because of his great love for us, wakes us up. He wakes us up. And he says, I will give you myself, and it will be glorious, and you'll be satisfied in me. God himself becomes the beginning, the middle, and the end of our perfect happiness. Look at verse 30. So no human being can stand before God in the presence of God and boast. And because of him, 
I want to point that out again. Because of him, him who called you, him who chose you, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. And so here's the deal. God's love is displayed in such a way that he called you and he chose you. And when you are outside of the picture, God's doing this work apart from you, grabs you, makes you alive, and then places you in Christ. That's great news. Because when he grabs you and he takes you and he puts you in Christ, that is wisdom and power. Listen, you don't put yourself in Christ. God does that. If you could, then you would have something to boast about. Amen? If you could somehow say, I'm over here, God's over there, and somehow make my way over there. I know I had to make a right here and a left here, and I saw some stuff here, and I climbed the mountain here. But finally, I made it. Woo-hoo! I'm in Christ. You boast. God says, "Uh uh-uh. You're foolish. You're broken. You're not strong. I'm going to pick you up, and I'm going to put you in Christ. That's how God does it, because God chose you. He placed you in Christ, which is the most loving thing that God can do, because as a result of of unity in Christ, it says that Christ becomes our wisdom. When we're in Christ, Christ now becomes our wisdom. Christ also becomes our righteousness. So no longer my righteousness, I'm in his righteousness. No longer my sanctification, it's his sin. Christ becomes my sanctification. Christ becomes my redemption. And that is the power. Is that not the power? That's the power. That it's no longer, I'm not smart enough. You're right, you're not, but you're in Christ and he's your wisdom. Well, I'm not righteous enough. I know you're not. That's why I place you in Christ because he's your redemption. Well, I don't act good enough. I know you don't. That's why I place you in Christ. And he becomes your righteousness. He becomes your sanctification. Which means everything you need in life and in death is found in Jesus Christ. Everything you need throughout this entire life And carries on to eternity. Joy with God. Everything you need is found in Jesus Christ. We are united to Christ because God did it. God chose us. God called us. And listen, he's calling you. He's not done. He's still calling you everything you need in life and in death is found in Jesus Christ. Everything. For what reason? Look how it ends. Verse 31. God takes you. He places you in Jesus Christ. And when you're placed in Jesus Christ, Jesus becomes your wisdom. Jesus becomes your righteousness. Jesus becomes your sanctification. Jesus becomes your redemption. So that, as it is written, let no one boast... Oh, let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
That's why he does it. God glorifies himself by setting aside human power, by setting aside human wisdom, by setting aside human intellect, by setting aside human effort, by setting aside human value, by setting aside all of it and exalting his power and his wisdom and his glory and his honor for our good forever and ever. Amen. That's what he does. He removes us and places us in Christ. Why? Because when we boast... We boast in the Lord. When you hear this call, you can't boast in yourself. So, here's my challenge. It's simple, yet hopefully compelling to you. Here's my challenge. Consider your calling, brothers. Consider the depths of that. Consider the greatness of that. Listen, not a calling to a job, not a calling to work, not calling to the missions field. Listen, consider the call that God has done in your life or is doing in your life to bring you to Him. Consider that calling. Consider the calling that you were asleep and you were sleeping yourself into an eternal tomb. Consider the calling that he says, wake up. Because it's only out of that powerful calling of God that he places you in Christ. And it's only out of that powerful calling that compels all other callings. It is the foundational calling to the calling of a wife or a husband or a student or a worker or a manager. This calling is the foundational calling to every other calling in the world. Consider it. Consider how God's called you. This is, this is how I pray. This is how I pray for you so that we would boast in the Lord. I long for the day where we see the church only boasting in the Lord. Um, we're going to end a little bit different today. Never done this before. But I want you to just, right where you're at, just consider your calling. Will you just, um, will you just bow your heads for just a moment? I want you to kind of separate yourself just individually from the people on your right and your left. I want you to listen to the voice of God right now. Listen to the voice. Is he calling you? Calling you. Lord, I know you still call. it says that before the foundations you chose us to be a people of your very own that every spiritual blessing comes from you Christ maybe you're here and you've just been trying to work it out on your own strength 
Maybe you've never really leaned on Jesus in such a way to be your wisdom. Maybe you're waiting for all the blanks to be filled in and God is crying out to you today, would you wake up? he wants to I know he is calling you for those who have ears let them hear let them arise and come out of the tomb and be set free Jesus please if you would Again, I've never done this before, but I want to end this time in um, just a corporate prayer. And so I've wrote out some things that I've been praying for, that I pray for, and we're going to shoot them up on the screen, and I'm going to ask that you would stand as we get ready to enter into worship, and that we would read this aloud as a prayer for ourselves, a prayer for our city, a prayer for our church, that we would ask God because without supernatural help, we cannot understand or experience the greatness of God's love. So read this with me. Jesus, help me consider your calling. Help me consider the depth of your calling to my dead soul. Help me consider your great love that empowers your calling. May your remarkable calling awaken me in such a way that my praise, my strength, and my confidence is in you alone. I pray also for those here at LifePoint Church that our calling as a body would come from our individual calling, which is the power of God. I pray that this church would boast in you, Lord, so greatly that we would see Hundreds of people come to Christ, marriages being reconciled and renewed, wayward children coming home, those who are in slavery to sin would be set free, spiritual dullness being replaced with vibrant joy, weak faith being replaced by bold witness, disinterest in prayer being replaced by warlike intercession, ritual Bible reading being replaced by passion for the word. Disinterest in mission would be replaced by energy for Christ's name. Lukewarm worship would be replaced by zeal for the greatness of God. O oh Lord, as we consider your calling that awakens my soul, let us always rejoice in the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you guys.